Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. All right, welcome back to the Cribsiders. Hey, y'all. I'm Justin Bird, joined tonight <laughs> by wonderful co-host Dr. Chris the Jew Manchu That's and me. our phenomenal producer and showrunner Sam Mazur. Say hi, Sam. Hey, guys, how you going? Uh, <laughs> we had an outstanding guest tonight, Dr. Mike Fahey, returning to discuss supraventricular tachycardia. But before we get into the content, let's talk about the show. Chris, tell us what we do. Well, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Mike Fahey, who comes to us from the University of Massachusetts, where he is Chief of Pediatric Cardiology and Program Director for the Pediatric Residency Program. He is the recipient of multiple teaching awards across all training levels, and today he teaches us how to approach narrow complex tachycardias, discusses the multiple types of SVT treatment, and gives us his bundle of info. You guys, I know it's a longer one, but you got to stick with it because it's heart-stopping, almost like getting adenosine. Thanks. Welcome back, Dr. Mike Fahey, to the second round of the Cribsiders. We're so we're so excited to have you. Welcome back. Thanks very much. Uh, I had a lot of fun last time, and I'm happy to be back. Uh, well, we are lucky to have you because, as we were just talking about congenital heart disease, the previous episode was extremely popular. People clearly loved it, and it's very exciting to give people part two. We like to give people what they want, and I think uh, I think this episode is really going to go a long way. Yeah, I hope so. Um, I mean, congenital heart disease. I mean, who who couldn't love congenital heart disease, right? <laughs> and and today today we're going to get into arrhythmia. I mean, who couldn't love talking about arrhythmia, right? I, palpitations. Just thinking about it, I think uh, that's palpitations joke number one for this episode. <laughs> um, we'll probably have one in the intro too. Um, We've done some of the get to know you questions before, but to remind our guests, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, give us the one liner, remind our, our guests uh, who you are and, and a little bit about you. Yeah, sure. So uh, again, I'm Mike Fahey. I'm a chief of peds cardiology out at uh, UMass Memorial Medical Center, uh, affiliated with now UMass Chan Medical School out in Worcester, Massachusetts. And I also run the pediatric residency program out there. I'm a recovering fishing addict. I think I mentioned that last time. Oh, guys, I was I was in the Adirondacks last last week fishing for big brook trout. It was unbelievable. But now I'm back to reality. You know, there's a a little bit of a sad rivalry now between Providence and Wooster because a neighboring city of Providence, Pawtucket, had the minor league Red Sox team, the Paw Sox. They're now the Woo Sox. They're the Woo Sox. Uh, and it's kind of heartbreaking because we no longer have a minor league baseball team in I, Rhode Island. I totally understand your pain because the Woo Sox are awesome. Um, the, 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 polar, uh, the new Polar Park in Worcester is just killer. And um, we're, we're pretty stoked about it. But I am sorry for your loss. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear about it. Okay. Though. Okay. We, we don't have to talk about it. Chris or Sam, do one of you have uh, a get to know you question maybe that we haven't done or... Sam, you go first. I'm thinking still. Yeah, so. I think we actually did 
thank you last time for answering our questions for both our favorite failure and best advice. So the other question that we usually ask our guests is if there was a book you might recommend, uh, anything that a physician should read or just anything that you're reading or uh, that we could always entertain Justin with. Yeah, gosh. I mean, I, so I, it took me about 10 years to get through the, um, the fire and ice. What is it? What do you call five book of five book series? Of yeah, Game of Thrones. Yeah. Game of Thrones. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. So uh, I, I finally got through those after like I watched season one and I was like, Oh, I like this show a lot. I think I'm going to read the books. And that only took me like 10 years to do. I just finally got through those this summer. Um, don't, so I don't recommend that. Um, you know, I think, I think, I mean, my, my favorite books are, you know, I love Lonesome Dove, man, that, that book, I cried like a baby at the end of that book. Um, love that book. Uh, but the, the, you know, um, I was thinking before also about a book I haven't read in a long time. Uh, Sophie's Choice is unbelievable. Um, I love Power of One is unbelievable. Anyway. Um, but gosh, I, I, I just don't have time to dig into good books the way that I used to. Uh, you know, Sam, I did think about another important failure that had to do with arrhythmia, and maybe we can get into that a little later. Go for it. Oh, maybe we can get oh, it. Uh, later, later. Oh, later, well, later. Yeah, no, no, I guess I guess we could do it now. So, so um, I'll try not to make it too long because it's kind of an involved story, but but basically uh, I got called by the NICU when I was on call many years ago, and um, we're going to talk in this episode about how to diagnose different arrhythmias, and uh, this, this attending who was great, super sharp. Uh, gentleman and, and and who really knew his stuff. He essentially was telling me that this kid was in a wide complex tachyarrhythmia, and um, you know, so we, it looked like uh, ventricular tachycardia. And uh, and I'm you know, but the kid was totally fine, stable, breathing normally, normal blood pressure, normal perfusion, everything. So I was like, this isn't VTAC, you know, this this, this guy's got it wrong. And you know, so just you know, it's probably uh, SVT. We'll talk about SVT. In a little bit, SVT with aberrancy, which can make SVT look like a wide complex uh, arrhythmia, and uh, and I said, give the adenosine and let's just see what happens. And you know, I'm thinking they're going to give the adenosine and this this, this kid's going to convert, and it didn't convert. And I said, are you sure your IV's hooked up right? Like I'm really giving this guy a hard time, you know. And then I'm finally like, fine, I'll come in and I'll figure this out. So I'm like, give me the adenosine, and I'm like hooking up the the three way stopcock and the whole thing. I'm like, I'm gonna show these guys how it's done and uh, and sure enough i give the adenosine and and nothing happens nothing happens and i sit there i'm like what is going on here and it wasn't until i did it myself that i i i sat back and i thought well adenosine's not working this kid actually is in vtac and we'll talk about like maybe why why that is later but um and the kid happened to be in an extremely rare uh, arrhythmia idiopathic vtac which you can see in infancy sometimes and it tends to be a pretty hemodynamically stable uh, rhythm, unlike other forms of VTAC. And it usually, if you can get them out of it, it usually just kind of resolves on its own, and then it just doesn't come back. And it, again, super rare, but it was a learning point for me to say, you know, it, and this happens in medicine all the time, right? Where uh, you come into a case always thinking about your last case or, or, you know, with your own kind of preconception of what's going on. And it's always super important to doubt yourself and to say, mm, like, what else could this be? Like, don't, you know, cause you're, and this happens for example, with cardiac imaging all the time. If you go in with an impression of what you're going to see, your brain is going to make your eyes see what you want to see, see what your brain wants you to see. Um, and so it's always important to go in to cases with a blank slate, you know, get the information, make your analysis and try not to come in with too many preconceived notions as to what's going on. 
That's why whenever I'm in the PICU and get an EKG, it's always idiopathic ventricular tachycardia until proven otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great story. And maybe we should just jump right into it. What do you think, guys? Let's do it. All right. Sounds good. Take us away, Sam. All right. So uh, our first case from Cashlack Children's is Wolf P. White. So he is a five-year-old previously healthy boy. He's presenting with chest pain. He was playing basketball with his older brother in the driveway when his chest started to hurt. He ran into the house and pointed at his chest, and his mom felt like his heart was beating really fast, and so she took him to the doctor. So in your clinic, his heart rate is 190 beats per minute. An EKG is done, which shows a narrow complex tachycardia. So providers will often say, quote, this kid is in VTAC. But what does that actually mean? All right. So before we get into it, I mean, we just in this initial question, we already started to get into some terminology. And I think it makes sense to take a step back for a sec. And let's just talk about the normal conduction system of the heart and like what a normal cardiac impulse is like, because talking about arrhythmias, we pretty quickly get into terminology and that makes things super confusing. So let's just go to like, like bare bones, like bare basics and, and build up from there. So we're going to like kind of imagine in our heads from medical school, right? You learn that the electrical system of the heart starts with the sinus node and the sinus node lives in the, in the high right atrium, kind of near where the uh, superior vena cava joins with the right atrium. And uh, all heart muscle cells have automaticity. Automaticity means that if you leave those cells alone long enough, they're going to depolarize on their own. They don't need any kind of stimulus to get them going. They just automatically depolarize. And as it turns out, the sinus node has the most automaticity of of anything in the heart. So that's the sinus node is the group of cells that kind of beats the drum. It's 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 the group of cells that dictates the cadence of the heart rate. And so the electrical signal starts with the sinus node. That electrical signal kind of cascades through the upper chambers, through the atria, like waves going through a pool if you were to throw a stone into it. And that electrical wavefront goes through the atria. And then it goes all the way down to the ventricles, but then it, it hits a stop, right? Because remember in your, from your anatomy that there is this fibrous ring between atria and ventricles that electrically insulate the atria from the ventricles, except at one place, and that's the AV node. So the AV node lives right at the junction between atria and ventricles, and the AV node's job is to receive that signal from the atria, hang on to it for a split second to let the kind of blood flow catch up to that electrical signal, And then the electrical signal goes extremely rapidly through the Hisperkinji system that carries that electrical signal into the ventricles. And it's that extremely rapid conduction that causes all that ventricular myocardium to depolarize in a very short amount of time. And uh, we'll talk about this in a minute, but that all that ventricular myocytes uh, depolarizing in a very short amount of time is what gives you a narrow QRS complex. We're going to talk about narrow versus wide QRS and remember, the QRS complex is the thing on the EKG that shows you what's, uh, the, what's happening with ventricular depolarization. In order to have a nice narrow QRS, you need to have a, a normally functioning Hisperkinji system. So if you ever see a narrow QRS, you know that signal came through the AV node, through the Hisperkinji system, and, and did what it was supposed to do. Then that signal goes back up through the ventricles, and then it, it would go back right up to the atria, but it can't because remember the ventricles are electrically isolated from the atria. And so that signal can't make its way back up. Everything goes back into its you know, refractory state. And then you start back up from the top of the sinus node and then you go again. All right. So that's the quick refresher. Um, so now let's get into what's going on with this kiddo. 
Um, so five years old, comes into the office after feeling like his heart was racing. And uh, I think he said he felt like a little dizzy, right? And maybe a little chest discomfort. Is that right? Had some chest pain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and the heart rate was 190 beats a minute, I think he said. Yep. Yeah. So for a five-year-old, 190 beats a minute. Well, you know, theoretically, if, if we had this kid on a treadmill and we were like maxing him out, he could get his heart rate up that high. Remember, um, your maximum sinus rate is uh, dictated by the formula. The fastest possible heart rate is 220 beats a minute minus your age and years. So theoretically, you know, if he was running around on a treadmill, he could get his heart rate up to 190. Or if he was, you know, really, really sick with something else, right? He was uh, sept in septic shock or something like that. Theoretically, he could get his sinus rate that high. But this is a kid who's walking into your office. So his, his heart rate is not going to be that high, right? So yeah, so just right off the bat, when you see a persistent heart rate that fast, you know that you're probably dealing with some sort of arrhythmia. And the fact that the kid is sitting up talking to you, that's your first tip off that this is probably not an immediately dangerous arrhythmia. Like it's not, for example, a ventricular arrhythmia. And therefore it is likely what we're going to be spending most of this time talking about, which is supraventricular tachycardia. So to unpack that word a little bit, or that term a little bit, um, if you look at your PALS algorithm, on, uh, if, if anybody looks at a PALS algorithm for how to deal with tachyarrhythmia, the first branch point before, you, uh, actually the first thing to decide is, is the patient like really sick and unstable? Or are they okay? You know, are they sitting up talking to you? But the next step is to figure out, are you dealing with a wide QRS tachyarrhythmia or a narrow QRS tachyarrhythmia? And that gets to what I was talking about before. If it's a narrow QRS tachyarrhythmia, you know that that signal came through the AV node and is going through the Hisperkinji system the way that it was meant to. And so right off the bat, if it's a narrow QRS, that is supraventricular tachycardia. So there's a whole, so SVT is an umbrella term for all those fast arrhythmias with narrow QRS. And there's a lot of them. There's a lot of different, uh, different ones. And that's when you start getting into like the alphabet soup of EAT and PJRT and AVNRT and, you know, like it, it makes your head spin. So I think it makes the most sense to talk about things kind of mechanistically and try not to get too bogged down in the terminology. So the first step when you're evaluating a kid with a heart rhythm that's too fast is first question always is hemodynamically stable or not? Because if not, that takes you down another pathway. You're going to treat that patient very differently than if you're dealing with a hemodynamically stable patient. And if the patient is hemodynamically stable, it, the overwhelming likelihood is that you're dealing with SVT. I always had a question in all the different types of SVT, sinus tachycardia, which is supraventricular, which is above the ventricular, is, it, does that count? Is, yeah. that, is that one of the SVTs that we just forget about? Yeah, it, you know, I get, you know, so technically, you know, sinus tachycardia, I guess you could say is SVT, but most people, when they use the term SVT, they're talking about an abnormal rhythm. They're talking about uh, a rhythm that's not generated by the normal conduction system of the heart. So when I give this talk to medical students and residents who, who are rotating with us in cardiology, I usually preface this by saying, we're not talking about uh, sinus tachycardia today. We're talking about tachyarrhythmia. So, you know, it's, it's a not normal heart rhythm. So we just said that, you know, supraventricular tachycardias are those that exist um, above the AV node and they're narrow complex. And so, you know, Justin just brought up one of them being sinus tach, but we're going to kind of skip that. So what are the other most common ones that we might see in children? Yeah. So the most common uh, form of SVT in kids, and again, and I want to 
steer away from terminology as much as I can, but you can't get away from, uh, from a couple of terms. Uh, the most common type is atrioventricular reentrant tachycardia. And, and these terms kind of describe the path of the electricity. So atrioventricular, so it's a pathway that goes from atria to ventricles, a reentrant, hmm, reentrant. So reentry uh, implies that there's some sort of loop of electricity that's happening. And so in AVRT, there has got to be another way for electricity to get from atria to ventricles or from ventricles to atria for that matter, so that the electricity, instead of just going from top to bottom and then it can't go anywhere anymore, it goes from top to bottom and then has some way to get back up to the atria to then go back down the AV node in his Purkinje system, which again gives you that narrow QRS. Then it goes back up to the atria and then back down the AV node in his Purkinje system to give you your next narrow QRS and so forth. So AVRT is the most common form of SVT that we see in kids. And uh, the kind of prototype of AVRT is Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. That's the most common predisposing condition to that uh, reentrant type of arrhythmia. And just to clarify on exactly what that is, the reentry note, when you describe the electricity of the heart to begin with, you mentioned that the atria and ventricles were isolated except at the AV node. In AVRT, am I right to say that that isolation is with the exception of the AV node and a re-entry pathway? That's exactly correct. And some people in Wolf, Parkinson, White, this extra pathway is often referred to as a bundle of Kent, but whatever. Um, I usually, <laughs> we usually just call it an accessory pathway. It's another place other than the AV node where electricity can get between atria and ventricles. And so when the heart rate is going 190 beats per minute, for example, you know, we're trying to make one of these diagnoses, we would like to get, as most people would probably imagine, is an EKG or some form of rhythm strip. Um, how do we make that diagnosis via that 12 lead? And this may be challenging to talk about um, without imaging, you know, as we're doing an audio podcast, but uh, we'll yeah, see where sure. we can get. Sure. So, um, so if you were in your office and you had the luxury of having an EKG uh, machine right there, you know, you would put the leads on the patient and do kind of a rhythm strip and kind of have a look at what you're looking at. And again, the first thing in the algorithm that you would think about is, are we dealing with a wide QRS tachyarrhythmia or a narrow QRS tachyarrhythmia? And if it's narrow, you're talking about supraventricular tachycardia. And the hallmarks of reentrant SVT are that your QRS complexes are going to be extremely regular. Because uh, if you think about it, those QRS complexes, those the, the ventricular... Uh, beats are happening every time the electricity goes once through that circuit. Uh, and so if we have a little circuit of electricity, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a little electric circuit that has its own frequency. And, and as a result, it's going to be extremely regular. Every time that electricity makes a pass through the ventricles, ventricles are going to squeeze. And so you're going to get an extremely regular uh, heart rate. Importantly, you will, you will occasionally see a little bit of wobble, wobble, so to speak, where the, you know, the, QRS, the QRSs don't exactly you know, march out in perfect intervals, but it should, it should be awfully regular. It should be really uh, quite regular. And that's to um, differentiate a reentrant rhythm from something that we would call an automatic type of tachycardia. Um, there are also automatic types of tachycardia, which are a bit more rare, and those usually happen as the result of an extra pacemaker that you have that decides to wake up and cause trouble. So, for example, the most common 
automatic type of um, uh, tachyarrhythmia would be ectopic atrial tachycardia, or EAT. And that's when you have, essentially, it's like having an extra pacemaker in your atria that doesn't play by the rules. And every once in a while, it's going to decide to wake up and uh, cause trouble and start beating faster than the sinus node. And because it starts beating, uh, beating faster than the sinus node, it takes over control of the heart rhythm. But um, that first step, if you have the luxury of having an EKG, is looking for those, uh, looking for the R to R intervals. So the, you know, how much space is between each QRS complex? Is it very regular or is it irregular? Um, and then you kind of take things from there. And the one follow-up question to that is just trying to differentiate between, you know, just normal sinus tachycardia and also this tachyarrhythmia that we're concerned about. How do you best differentiate the two? Yeah. So remember, uh, the, the requisite features of any kind of sinus rhythm are you got to have a P wave before every QRS. You have to have a QRS after every P wave. And that P wave should look like it's coming from the sinus node. Namely, that P wave should be upright in lead one and upright in lead AVF because lead one sits out to, uh, sits out to the patient's left. So if the beat's coming from the sinus node, it should be moving from the patient's right to left. And AVF is straight down. So if, again, the beat's coming from the sinus node, that wave should be moving from top to bottom. So those are our three requisites for sinus rhythm. And so if you're an SVT and you know that rhythm isn't being generated by the sinus node anymore, you'll see narrow QRS complexes, but you won't see P waves. So the P waves will be missing from the equation. And you mentioned that a lot of this is very dependent on the EKG. Before we go into even some of the more nuances, is there any information on history or family history or um, chief complaint that helps guide the algorithm in your mind or the process? Or is it really just heart rate's high, get an EKG, and start marching out with the calipers? Yeah, sure. So again, first and foremost, in, in evaluation of any uh, tachyarrhythmia or a suspected tachyarrhythmia is hemodynamic stability or not. Um, because if not, you're going to move right into a much more aggressive treatment strategy. Um, you know, this is a five-year-old kid that we're talking about, and so the history is probably going to be a little bit fishy. You know, some five-year-olds are more expressive than others, and, you know, some of them can describe that their heart feels like it's racing. For some reason, I've heard a, a ton of younger kids describe it as their heart beeping, B-E-E-P-I-N-G. I don't, I don't know why, but I've heard several kids describe it that way, which is kind of cute. But anyway, uh, so... There's, you know, the most common symptoms uh, in a kid this age would be, you know, if they can express a sensation of their heart racing, oftentimes there's associated chest pain, oftentimes associated dizziness. Uh, fainting, on the other hand, or, you know, loss of consciousness is quite rare with SVT. So if you ever have a kid where the chief complaint is a fainting episode, you should immediately start scratching your head and wonder if this is something different and maybe a little bit more insidious uh, and dangerous than SVT. In a younger kid who might not be able to uh, express what's going on, for example, an infant, uh, the types of things that we look for are unexplained irritability. Now, of course, you know, infants are irritable, like that, that's what they do, right? Um, but it's kind of all right, you know, it's not just they're fussy, you know, you, you fed them and they're still fussy, or, you know, they're not, they're so fussy that they're not feeding, you know, you change their diaper, they're still fussy, they're just, you know, they're not sleeping, they're just fussy, 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 that, that, those are the kinds of things, and, you know, sometimes associated with color changes in, in the congenital heart disease podcast, I think we talked about how, uh, you know, we always ask about color changes, 
And people usually think that we're talking about cyanotic congenital heart disease, but really kind of what we're fishing for there is, uh, is this kid in a high adrenaline state or not? And the high adrenaline state seen in congenital heart disease is often uh, times also seen in kids who are in tachyarrhythmias. And so they'll get some of those peripheral color changes as well. The blueness around the lips, uh, uh, around the lips and mouth, uh, maybe of the hands and feet as well. Uh, maybe a little bit of sweating that goes along with that. Uh, babies, especially if they've been in SVT for a while, they'll oftentimes start to uh, exhibit signs of you know, tachypnea, rapid breathing, labored breathing. And again, that's a sign that they've been in SVT long enough that their cardiac output is starting to get compromised and they're starting to get a little bit of backup uh, into the lungs that's causing some of those respiratory symptoms. So uh, yeah, there's a few historical things that can give you kind of hints as to, as to what's going on. Um, and, and those are a little bit different depending on the age group that you're taking care of. Um, other historical factors, you know, family history, you know, most arrhythmias don't really have a strong, a very strong heritability. There, there, there is uh, some data to suggest that there's, there's certainly a higher incidence of, of WPW, for example, Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome in first and second degree family members uh, of individuals. I, I think the information is something like your risk is two or three times higher to have WPW if you have a first degree family member who has WPW, but we don't really understand the genetics of that. You know, if you if you talk about older folks, there definitely seems to be some uh, genetic uh, susceptibility to things like atrial fibrillation, but that that's more in adult medicine, not so much pediatrics. A AFib is a very rare arrhythmia in pediatrics. And any other SVTs that we should have on the differential? What about AVNRT? Yeah, so you'll hear a lot of people talk about AVNRT. So what does that mean? Uh, so AVNRT stands for atrioventricular nodal reentrant tachycardia. So we just chucked an N in that the earlier term that we talked about, the AVRT. So now we just throw a nodal right in the middle there. And you know, AVNRT, uh, rather than having an accessory pathway outside of the AV node, you actually have that little reentrant loop of uh, electricity happening within the AV node itself. So, you know, when we draw a picture of the conduction system of the heart, we always draw the AV node as just like a little ball. And then there's like a line that comes off it, which is the Hisperkinji system, right? Like, remember, the AV node is this like really complex bundle of fibers, right? And you can imagine that within that bundle of fibers, you might have some that conduct a little bit faster, some that conduct a little bit slower. And uh, in AVNRT, what happens is that those fibers are arranged in such a way that a loop of electricity can exist within the AV node itself. And so the, that little reentrant loop that we were talking about before is spinning round and round inside the AV node. And every time it spins around, it sends a signal down to the ventricles and it sends a signal up to the atria. So it's kind of depolarizing both atria and ventricles with each little spin of electricity. It's theoretically possible to discern AVNRT from AVRT on an EKG, but frankly, it's real difficult to do. It's got to be at absolutely perfect tracing, and, 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 you, and even in perfect conditions, like you can't always do it. So, and frankly, honestly, discerning between AV, uh, AVRT and AVNRT, that, that's the job of the electrophysiologist. Like, even as a general cardiologist, I'm not concerned with that at all. You know, in the, in, the, in the discussion of SVT and its treatment and its diagnosis, um, that's like, that's too detailed for even the general cardiologist. Um, and, and I think uh, that's when people, I think, start to just, their head starts to spin around because there's too many little details. 
So I think it's much more practical to kind of think about the general mechanisms by which these things are happening. Because then if you understand the general mechanisms, that really helps you to understand, well, what are we going to do to treat the patient um, and how are we going to uh, prevent this from happening in the future? So we just touched on um, actually some awesome points, but including how these children often present and uh, and what goes into this. We also talked about when the kid comes to clinic, you know, we have to find out are they hemodynamically stable or not. But when that also happens, do we need to any order any other diagnostic tests or do we just try to break it now and worry about a workup later? Yeah. So, you know, let's, for, for example, if uh, let's say you had a baby or this five-year-old come in and, you know, they're not looking so great, their color's a little off, their breathing seems labored, they really seem uncomfortable. You know, that's a kid that you're probably going to want to get out of your office and, and into the emergency room as quickly as you can. But in the meantime, you know, let's say you called 911 and an ambulance is on its way and, you know, you, you feel the pulse and you feel like it's very, very fast. You feel like it's very, very regular. You know, you're not going to hurt anybody by trying vagal maneuvers um, to try to break uh, somebody out of SVT. And so when we talk about vagal maneuvers, there's a lot of different ones. And we can try different things uh, depending on different age groups. You know, you learn in adult medicine the carotid massage, right? You, you kind of rub on the carotid uh, arteries there. And um, the idea here, and we should back up a little bit and say vagal maneuvers, what, what's a vagal maneuver? So these are different exercises that you can do, um, have, have the patient do or, or do to the patient that tries to stimulate the vagus nerve. Because if, if you think back as to what the vagus nerve does, the vagus nerve is that nerve that kind of slows everything in your body down, right? It's the, it's the rest and digest nerve. And from a cardiac perspective, uh, what vagal stimulation tends to do is it slows sinus node automaticity. So if, if you're in sinus rhythm and you do a vagal maneuver, you'll slow sinus rate down. And it also slows down AV node conduction. And that, that's the key part when we're talking about uh, vagal maneuvers uh, as treatment for SVT. Because in reentrant forms of SVT that use the AV node as part of the loop, if we can get that AV node to slow down a little bit, What's going to happen is, as that really rapid loop of electricity tries to get down the AV node, if we can just put the brakes on the AV node a little bit, that very rapid electrical signal is going to find that the AV node is refractory. It will not have recovered fast enough to be able to conduct anymore. And if that happens, that loop of electricity will break, that circuit breaks, and once it breaks, what happens? Oh, well, the next most automatic thing in the heart is going to be the next thing that fires. And that's the sinus node. So in other words, if you can get that loop of electricity to break by slowing conduction through the AV node, that circuit's going to break and you're going to go back into sinus rhythm. So uh, vagal maneuvers, uh, slow AV node conduction, and there's a, a number of things you can try. In, in kids, probably the most effective one, for example, the five-year-old that we're talking about, would be to... Um, get a straw and have them blow as hard as they can through that straw. Or uh, in, a, in a younger kid, maybe, I don't know how many pediatric offices have like pinwheels, but you have them like, imagine that they're blowing on a pinwheel or imagine that they're blowing out birthday candles or something like that. No, 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 you know, Jimmy, blow harder. You got to get all the candles out, you know. So you try to get them to blow really hard. And the idea there is that you're trying to get them to do a Valsalva maneuver. Now, if you tell a kid, oh, you know, bear down, you know, that, that's what everybody says, bear down like you're having a bowel movement. I mean, Johnny's going to look at you like you have lobsters crawling out of your ears, right? Like he's going to have no idea what you're talking about. So for, for kids, you know, you got to kind of break it down into terms that they understand. So blow out the birthday candles, you know, blow through this straw or whatever it is. 
for younger kids, so for infants, we have a few more options. The most commonly used uh, vagal maneuver probably for infants is the, the ice to the face. Uh, the right way to do that is you, you get a bag, you put some ice in it. Importantly, you put some water in it and you kind of shake it around so you have a nice like slurry of, of ice and water because that's going to give you much better uh, contact of that cold surface. And um, you put the bag of ice, importantly, don't put the bag of ice over the whole face, right? Because we don't, we don't want to smother the poor baby. So you put the, the, you put the ice kind of over the upper part of the face, over the eyes, over the cheeks, and that sort of thing. And just kind of apply gentle pressure, hold it there for five or 10 seconds. And then you kind of break and um, the baby's going to be mad as, mad as hell at you. But, um, but if you feel the pulse and it's slowed down, you've done your job. Other options for babies is stimulating a gag reflex. That'll sometimes work. Another very commonly uh, used uh, vagal stimulus in infants is rectal stimulation. So, you know, you take a rectal temperature or something like that. And uh, that can also work actually to, uh, as a vagal stimulus to get babies out of SVT. I remember being the uh, the intern in the in the NICU, and we had one of the babies in the feeder grower section went to SVT, and I remember running to the the ice machine, filling up the bag, and then just throwing it on the baby, and it worked. It was like the craziest thing. I was like, "Whoa!" Yeah. Um, about the blowing of the straw, you know, I heard about this and a, a similar thing with adults. Um, the the revert trial came out a couple of years ago, and they. They looked at blowing, uh, they used a, a 10 cc syringe as well. And then they also added a, make someone uh, supine and, and, and a leg raise at the same time. And they call it the modified Valsava maneuver. I don't know if for our older kids, is that something that we can also do? Well, it's really interesting because older kids, in, in older kids who have kind of frequent episodes of SVT, like let's say, for example, um, we have them on medicine that kind of keeps them under control, but they still have breakthrough episodes here and there they kind of figure out what works for them. I've had several kids figure out that doing handstands or headstands gets them out of it. So kids will do all kinds of crazy stuff and, and you know, hey, whatever works, works, right? So I don't, I don't know that we've done the data on headstand versus ice to the face versus 10cc syringe or pinwheel or whatever, but uh, it's kind of you try a bunch of stuff and you end up figuring out what works for the patient. So Dr. Fahey, let me ask, when... When the patient's now in the emergency room under the wonderful care of Dr. Mazur, what's the concern about letting the SVT continue? Why are we worried that this five-year-old's heart rate is 190 beats per minute? Is there How long can a five-year-old go with this fast of a heart rate? And so what's the big concern with SVT? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, because I think the, the first knee-jerk reaction when you're seeing any kid who's in SVT with these super fast heart rates, remember sometimes we're talking about heart rates up around 300 beats a minute. That's, that's scary for almost anybody. But actually, uh, dis, despite that, uh, SVT is usually not immediately threatening to somebody's health. Um, you know, certainly at those very faster heart rates, you have a much higher likelihood of, of having you know, circulatory problems, because if you're beating at 300 beats a minute, you don't really have enough time to fill that those ventricles. And so your cardiac output's going to get compromised. But kids can maintain these very fast heart rates for remarkable periods of time. Um, it would be very unusual for a kid to get into any sort of significant trouble in SVT, even if they've been in it for a few hours. I would say as a general rule of thumb, you know, we'd start to get a little, and um, the length of time that we kind of tolerate or that we feel comfortable is, um, you know, is related to how fast it is. So obviously, if you have a kid who's in SVT at 300 beats a minute, 
Uh, they're not going to tolerate that nearly as long as a kid who's in SVT at 180. But generally speaking, kids can tolerate SVT for several hours at a time without getting themselves into too much trouble. Once you start getting into the, you know, beyond that, they've been in SVT for 10 hours, for 20 hours, uh, that's when the risk of progressing toward what we call a tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy, that's when... Um, that's when uh, that risk starts to really uh, elevate. And does that present with signs of decompensated heart failure? Yes, 100%. So, so then, then you're really talking about a kid who's got cool extremities. You know, the, you can feel the pulses maybe, but they're very thready. Yeah, you're going to start to notice perfusion and blood pressure problems. So it, it, um, the presentation of a kid who's in SVT, who's kind of going into heart failure, it, it's it's that's a sick looking kid. You, you know, it, it's not the five-year-old who's sitting up talking to you. It's a kid who's got color changes, who's got respiratory distress, uh, who's got those peripheral perfusion changes and, and oftentimes, uh, starting to have hypotension as well. Uh, those, th that, that's how those kids definitely, uh, definitely will start to look when they've been it for a long time. So in a five-year-old or, or certainly in an older kid, we're going to have a much more reliable historian to kind of let us know when their symptoms started so we can be much more confident about how long they've been in the arrhythmia. In an infant, it can be much um, more difficult, right? Because they can't say, hey, mom and dad, I started having palpitations three hours ago. You know, they may, they may have been in that tachyarrhythmia for a full day before the parents even knew what was going on. Because a lot of times an infant, they might they might not exhibit many symptoms early on, and it might only be after they start to decompensate that it becomes obvious that there's something going on. So we definitely get a little bit more concerned with our infants who are presenting in SVT for the first time, because it's really impossible to know how long they've been in it. Uh, and again, the major concern, um, other than the immediate uh, problem of, you know, kind of congestive heart failure that they can have, is this uh, tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy. Basically, They've been in a they 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 have this demand ischemia for long enough that it actually causes damage to heart muscle and even after you get them out of the SVT they can have residual uh, ventricular dysfunction. So now we're in the ED and Dr. Mazur here is is taking care care of the patient. We have now he's got a, a couple more you know if he's in the emergency department he's got hopefully more things to his disposal. Um, what what are some other temporizing things or things that he may be able to do compared to if I was in some other outpatient setting? Yeah, you know, I think pretty much if, if a kid is, uh, is, is fairly stable, you've tried all the vega maneuvers and they're, and they're not working for you, you know, it, generally speaking, we, we will jump right to uh, the next kind of step in the algorithm, which is administering adenosine. And if we think about, remember, adenosine is a medicine that's only given IV. It has an extremely short half-life in the bloodstream, you know, six, seven seconds, something like that. And we can think of adenosine as uh, kind of vagal maneuvers on steroids. It actually completely shuts down the AV node for a few seconds. And so those reentrant types of tachyarrhythmia that utilize the AV node as part of the circuit Adenosine should really work for all of them. So you're going to need IV access. I can't tell you how many times a kid has broken out of SVT as the IV is placed. So I wouldn't recommend going placing IVs in kids as like a mechanism to break SVT. But because you need an IV to administer adenosine, that you actually oftentimes see a stimulus like that uh, result in, in them breaking out of it. Uh, but then, you know, adenosine 
the first time you give adenosine, it always terrifies you. You know, we always joke around, like, get the cardioversion paddles out just in case, and then you put them on yourself because you're having, like, a heart attack <laughs> as, you're giving, as you're giving this kid adenosine. Because remember, if you administer adenosine appropriately, what you should see on the monitor next is a flat line, right? Because you're totally interrupting the signals between atria and ventricles. And so you shouldn't see anything. And so these kids flatline for a few seconds, sometimes seven, eight seconds. And, uh, and that's pretty scary, but they always come back. They always come back, guys. So, so don't, don't hold back on that adenosine. It's going gonna, it's gonna to work for those uh, reentrant forms of SVT that use the uh, AV node as part of the circuit. Now, adenosine has to be like, it's got to be pushed, right? Because of how short the half-life is. You're trying to like get it to the heart, right? That's exactly right. So, you know, this probably isn't going to work if you if you have like a 22 gauge IV, like in the big toe, uh, that that's probably not going to work for you. You try to get an IV in like the antecubital vein or something like that. And you always hook up a three way stopcock. You have the adenosine. So uh, one port is open to your IV. One port is open to the adenosine and one port's open to a good 10 cc uh, syringe of saline. And what you do is, um, when, once everybody's ready, and by the way, it's, it's always great whenever you're doing either an adenosine cardioversion or an electrical cardioversion, you have somebody running a rhythm strip while you're doing it because a lot of times you'll get a lot of information from a cardioversion as you silence that AV node. So you have somebody run a rhythm strip and then you rapidly push the adenosine in and then you you close off the, the stopcock to the adenosine, so then your flush is open and you very rapidly push in your flush to try to get that bolus of adenosine to the heart before its half-life uh, expires. And again, uh, the better you can do that, the better chances you have of breaking that uh, arrhythmia. And uh, sometimes looking, you know, looking at that rhythm strip, especially when you're not successful in breaking the SVT, it's important to look back at that rhythm strip and figure out what happened. Because if you, for example, I gave you that, uh, that example before where I gave that poor neonate two or three extra doses of adenosine because I was convinced that they were in SVT, and they weren't. So guess what? I was giving the kid adenosine, and I was shutting down the V node. But that didn't do anything because that particular kid, their arrhythmia was, was generated from the ventricles. So I could have given that kid a, an adenosine drip, and it wouldn't have done anything. Um, there, there are other times... Where, uh, for example, uh, atrial flutter is a good, is another type of SVT. We see it pretty rarely, but we do see it, especially in neonates. A flutter can be uh, a good mimicker of AVRT, and the key there is that uh, a flutter is another type of reentrant SVT. But the difference with a flutter is that um, uh, atrial flutter is a reentrant loop that ex- where the loop exists entirely within the atrium. So. Again, if, if your reentrant loop is, is, exists entirely within the atrium, if you give that kid adenosine or you do vagal maneuvers or, or whatever you're doing to shut up the AV node, you haven't done anything to the reentrant loop. So you'll give that kid adenosine, their heart rate will go to zero because that reentrant loop can't communicate with the ventricles anymore. But then as soon as, soon as the AV node wakes up again, the kid goes right back into the arrhythmia that they were in before. In other words, you get the ventricles to stop beating, but you haven't treated the arrhythmia itself. You haven't treated that reentrant loop. And atrial fibrillation, the same thing applies. So in atrial fibrillation, you have a more complicated reentrant loop, usually in the left atrium. 
you can give that person adenosine and you'll get the ventricle rate, uh, ventricular rate to go to zero. But then as soon as the AV node wakes back up, you go right back into the arrhythmia that you started in. So sometimes when you give adenosine and you're, you know, and the, and the kid is still in SVT afterwards, you know, if you call me as the cardiologist, I'll say, Hey, did you run a strip while you were doing that? Because I'd like to look at that because sometimes what happens is you actually do, it actually is AVRT and you break them out and then they just happen to go right back into it. And, and that, that happens from time to time. And that's an important thing too, because if you have a kid where you're, you successfully get them out of the SVT, but then they go right back into it. Well, heck, we can give them more adenosine and get them out of it, but they might just go right back into it again. So then you're just like giving them shot after shot of adenosine. That, that's, that's not going to do anything for that, for that poor kid. So, so if we saw that you broke it and then the kid right, went right back into it, we probably have to change our strategy to change the conduction system in a little bit more of a uh, long-lasting way for example, using other medications. So how, how many times would you, would you try it? You, you'll, I mean, like, I think with the pals, you, you do your second dose at double, I think double the dose. And then after two and you look this chip and you're not doing it or maybe three times, I mean, like what, how do you normally go about that? So it, so it really depends. The, the, the critical question is, did adenosine break the arrhythmia or not? And the only way you know is by having that rhythm strip running while you're doing it. So for example, you give the adenosine, heart rate goes to zero. You see that nice flat line. You see a couple of sinus beats. Hey, you broke it. But then, boom, they go right back into SVT. You know, I think it would be reasonable to give another dose of adenosine just to see if, you know, maybe you got unlucky and they had a, they had a little aberrant beat or something like that, that that triggered SVT again. But if you do it, say, twice and, and, they're, and you're clearly breaking it and they're going back in, I, I wouldn't bother. You, you, you got to change up your strategy there because um, that just indicates that whatever, go, whatever is going on in that kid's heart, they're just very much predisposed to SVT in this environment. And you just got to get you got to change the overall conduction of their heart in a different way uh, to try to keep them out of that SVT. What would be your next go-to medicine? I know there's a lot of different cardiologists like their go-to 1A blocker of various different types. I'm curious what yours might be. Yeah, 100%. So, so one thing I'll say here is that um, anything... So adenosine is a very specific medicine that we use to try to convert uh, kids out of reentrant SVT, uh, re specifically reentrant SVT that uses the AV node. Other type of antiarrhythmic agents, you know, the most common would be beta blockers because uh, beta blockers are safe, they're easy to get, they're easy to administer. You have IV forms, you have oral forms, so, so you got a lot of choices there. Uh, and most importantly, beta blockers are safe. As you go to different antiarrhythmic agents from that, uh, for example, you know, people uh, oftentimes use things like procanamide or something like that in the in the emergency department to convert SVT. That, that's a that's another. A uh, very safe, relatively short-acting drug that's not terribly pro-arrhythmic. As you get into the more and more kind of big, big gun antiarrhythmics, remember antiarrhythmics—they're basically poisoning your heart, right? So <laughs> in different ways. And so the more potent the antiarrhythmic agent you're using, the more the potential to trigger other nasty arrhythmias. So um, and and the specific antiarrhythmic agent you use really depends honestly on where you trained and who trained you and what antiarrhythmics they like to use. We have very little data that really prove the point of, oh, X 
antiarrhythmic agent works better than Y antiarrhythmic agent for for um, for you know for example run of the mill AVRT um, beta blockers generally work fine, but some kids are refractory to beta blockers, and then you got to use something stronger than that. The next step up would be something on the lines of probably sodalol or flecainide, and this is more for like kind of chronic therapy, or, or you know or using some of those medicines in combination. Those medicines, things like uh, sodalol and flecainide, they have different. You, you monitor them different ways. Some, you know, flecainide, you have to get uh, drug levels in the blood. You have to check uh, regular QT uh, QT intervals and that sort of thing. So, so it gets a little bit more complicated uh, once you get beyond that. And frankly, it, once you get beyond beta blockers, uh, I almost always run those patients by my electrophysiology colleagues because you know that this isn't something that I do every day. You know, I'm certainly very comfortable with beta blockers. And certainly even comfortable with, with maybe low dose of the next step of antiarrhythmic agent. But I don't hesitate to just give somebody who does this day in, day out a call and say, hey, what do you think about this? You know, and hey, am I getting this dose right? You know, just always double check with somebody who really knows what they're talking about. I, I usually consult cardiology after the second dose of flaconide. So that's when I am like, you know, we should really bring, we should really bring an expert into this. Once you once you've uh, 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 triggered VTAC in a kid, you kid, kid comes with SVT and you triggered VTAC by overdosing them with flecainide, then you call the cardiologist. Yeah, that's when it's you good. know you're ready for someone's good, help. Good technique. Yeah. <laughs> now, Mike, when do we? Um, when will we cardiovert? Like, say if they are if they are stable. I know if they're unstable. I think you're going to try to cardiovert them, right? Yeah, that's but right. If they're stable, is there at some point you're like, you know, maybe I should, I should sedate them and cardiovert them electrically. So. If you think about it, um, look, look, and this is a, this is a good uh, a good time to talk about basic mechanisms, right? So we talked about the mechanism by which uh, adenosine works. Adenosine works by shutting off the AV node transiently. Let's talk about electric cardioversion. So how does electric cardioversion work? Well, you're delivering an electric charge to all the heart cells at all the same time, so they all depolarize at the same time. If you deliver enough energy, right? You'll 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 depolarize all those cardiac cells all at the same time. And if you successfully do that, everything depolarizes, everything becomes refractory. So there's, there's not going to be any reentrant thing possible. And then what's the next thing that happens? The most automatic thing in the heart starts up again. So your sinus node starts and then you go back into sinus rhythm. So uh, electricity in contrast to adenosine will work for any reentrant heart rhythm. So AVRT, AVNRT, but also a flutter and a fib, which are reentrant rhythms that exist entirely within the atria. But if you're depolarizing everything at the same time, electricity should, or I should say has the potential to work for any reentrant SVT. And the time at which you use electricity, first and foremost would be in a patient who's hemodynamically unstable and you just know that you got to get them out of that rhythm as fast as possible. That that's that would be the first thing. There, I, I would say there are very few instances where you would use electricity for a type of SVT that should respond to adenosine, right? Because if you give enough adenosine in the right way and you document that you've shut the AV node off, well. That really should work for any reentrant uh, rhythm that uses the SV uh, that uses the AV node as part of the circuit. 
it might be that you've given adenosine and it hasn't converted the, you know, you, you know, you're looking at the strip and you're like, I just don't think that we ever converted this person out. Or you give adenosine and you recognize that once you shut up the AV node, you see those flutter waves, right? Underneath the pattern of QRS complexes. Once the QRS complexes go away, all of a sudden that sawtooth pattern of a flutter kind of comes out. Well, then you know that adenosine isn't going to work and you're going to move to electricity in that standpoint. I guess the, the only situation I could think of where, other than hemodynamic instability, where you would jump to electricity, you can't get IV access in the kid. Uh, you know, sometimes, I, but I, you know, I've seen even adenosine delivered by IO. I mean, poor kid. I was going to ask about IO yeah, adenosine. You can, Does that you, work? You, can, you can do it, but again, it takes a while for that adenosine to get through, you know, the marrow and into the bloodstream. I, I have seen it work, but I wouldn't, rec- <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. I'd frankly say, you know, that, that would be a situation if I couldn't get IV access, you know, I'm not confident that an IO is going to cut it because I don't, I'm not sure that adenosine is going to get through that bone up into the bloodstream, up to the heart in time. So that would be a situation if I couldn't get IV access that I, I might move right to electricity in that situation. Just to uh, kind of finish up this question, is there anything, any contraindication to adenosine or anything that we should be looking out for? Or just like, just go for it. And if it doesn't work, call the cardiologist. Yeah. So the one, um, you'll, if you spend any time in the emergency department, there's one uh, contraindication that you'll hear people talking about all the time. And that's um, in a patient with WPW. Um, and we, you know, we've, re- we've referenced WPW a couple times here in this talk, but I don't think we've really unpacked that a little bit. And I think it's worthwhile just taking a second to talk about what we mean by WPW. So Wolf Parkinson White is a type of AVRT, atrioventricular reentrant tachycardia, where your accessory pathway, and remember the accessory pathway is that extra place where electricity can get between atrium ventricles. That accessory pathway can conduct electricity from top to bottom and from bottom to top. And the top to bottom portion of the conduction is what's unique about WPW. So uh, let me, let me kind of explain what I'm, what I'm talking about. Uh, you, do you guys remember there's two kind of hallmark EKG findings in Wolf-Parkinson? Do you guys remember what those are? Delta. Delta wave. And Delta short, wave is one of them. And the short PR short interval. Short PR. And the short PR interval. Exactly. So let's think about why those things come about. So, um, so with WPW, you have an accessory pathway that can conduct from top to bottom. If we think about that sinus beat going through the atria, okay, it's going through the atria. It's going to get down to the AV node. And uh, oh, actually, but in, as opposed to the normal heart, now the electricity, it hits the AV node, which is going to slow, to, it's going to hang on to that uh, electrical signal for a second. But if there's an accessory pathway somewhere else that could conduct without any delay, well, that electrical signal going through the atria is just going to jump right down into the ventricles. And that, what that does, that shortens your PR interval, right? Because you don't have that delay anymore between uh, conduction from the atria down to the ventricles. You don't have to wait for the AV node to get it down into the hysperkinji system. It's just jumping right over through the accessory pathway into the ventricles. So that's what gives you your short PR interval. The delta wave, um, and again, we're gonna need an, in, like we're gonna have to imagine what a delta wave looks like, but um, a delta wave is kind of like a slurred upstroke of that QRS. The beginning part of the QRS is kind of, it's not sharp straight up and down, it's kind of slurred on a, on a lower slope. And what, what's going on there is that, remember we started off this talk by talking about 
a narrow QRS um, and that uh, conduction through the Hisper-Kinji system gives you a nice narrow QRS because that all that ventricular myocyte is, is uh, depolarizing in a very short amount of time. If the electricity is going through an accessory pathway and not using the Hisper-Kinji system, that electrical signal is going to conduct, it's going to conduct, but it's going to conduct through gap junctions in, between the ventricle, uh, between the uh, uh, ventricular myocytes. And, you know, I mean, that's going to get through pretty fast. It's electricity after all, but it's going to be a lot slower than the Hisper-Kinji system. And so if we were to just leave that uh, electrical signal going through, the, uh, going through the accessory pathway and we just let it go through the ventricles, it would look a lot like a PVC, a premature ventricular contraction, you know, a wide, nasty-looking QRS. But what happens is, is that it starts off looking like a PVC. It starts, look, it starts looking like a wide QRS. But then by the time the electricity gets, you know, I don't know, whatever, a quarter or halfway through the ventricle, that signal that was hanging out in the AV node, that makes it down the Hisper-Kinji system. And so the rest of the ventricle depolarizes normally. So it's almost like a fusion beat between a PVC and a normal QRS. And that's what gives you that, that, uh, that delta wave. It's, it's, it it, it kind of looks like a wider QRS, but it's that beginning part of the QRS that's wide. So those, those are the two findings in WPW that give you the hint that there's an accessory pathway present. All right, so that's WPW. Well, why do we care? You know, like, who cares? You know, the stupid accessory pathways conducting anagrade. Like, well, why does that matter? When you're in sinus rhythm, it doesn't matter at all. Like, having that short PR interval and delta wave doesn't do anything to you. It, very rarely, actually, um, if your accessory pathway is in, is, in a, is in the wrong place, it can cause actually ventricular dysfunction because it causes your ventricular depolarization to happen in a way that causes the ventricles to not beat in a synchronous kind of way. And so they kind of compete with one another. That's very rare, but rare, so, so rarely people with WPW will have a little bit of ventricular dysfunction as a result of where their accessory pathway is, but that's pretty rare. The, the main reason that we care about it is patients who have WPW are at a significantly higher risk of developing atrial fibrillation. We don't know exactly why that is. That has something to do with the uh, accessory pathway itself. And you might say, well, AFib, okay, that, that's a little weird, but you know, we don't see it in kids very much. Well, why do we care about that? Like adults get AFib all the time, right? And they're, they're generally okay. The reason we care about it is that, you know, generally people survive when they're in AFib because they have an AV node to protect their ventricles from going way, way too fast. Remember, fibrillation, if we think about atrial flutter rates of, you know, those, that's usually like 300 beats a minute, 350 beats a minute, something like that. Well, fib, afib, it, the atria are beating so fast, they're not even beating, right? They're fibrillating. They're like, they're just jiggling around. And that's because the atrial rates are so fast um, that you can kind of barely even count them. If you had an accessory pathway that could conduct at, I don't know, five or 600 beats a minute, well, what's to stop those electrical signals from jumping across that accessory pathway and causing your ventricles to beat at five or 600 beats a minute? And guess, and what do you call that? That's V-fib, and V-fib is lethal. So that, that's why we care about Wolf-Parkinson-White, is that not everybody with Wolf-Parkinson-White, but importantly, a subpopulation of people with Wolf-Parkinson-White they have to have an accessory pathway that can conduct very rapidly, and they have to develop AFib. And if those two things happen, that results in sudden cardiac death. And that is, thankfully, an extremely rare complication of WPW, but the risk is not zero. 
And, um, and that, that's what really kind of keeps us up at night as cardiologists. When you're, when you make that diagnosis of WPW and you're counseling that, uh, those parents, it's a very difficult conversation to have because it's a very rare, but very devastating outcome. Um, and there's not really any medical treatment that will prevent that sudden death. So, um, patients with WPW, we generally opt to uh, refer them for uh, ablation therapy, so an invasive catheterization to find that accessory pathway and get rid of it. And so in the patient that's in the emergency department with SVT, unknown to be WPW, or even if they did have WPW, does the adenosine itself, I imagine it's blocking the, the AV node, so you're only having that reentry pathway, but does the adenosine itself increase your likelihood of AFib or does the adenosine itself lead to any in worse complications? Yeah, Justin, so thanks for getting me back on task. Uh, back on task. I, I got uh, uh, on that segue of kind of talking about what, what Wolf Parkinsonite was, but, but yeah, so this critical thing of like, when would you not give adenosine? There, there's this kind of thing that you'll hear in emergency departments of, oh, you never give the patient with WPW adenosine. And what they're getting at is if you happen to have a patient coming in who, who has a known history of Wolf Parkinson White and they happen to be an AFib, all right, you can imagine a situation where some of the signals uh, from that AFib, from those fibrillating atria, some of the signals are making it down the accessory pathway and some of them are making, making it down the AV node. And because there's kind of competition uh, for the attention of the ventricles, so to speak, the ventricles are kind of maintained at a reasonable rate. And if you, but if you gave that patient adenosine and you shut off the AV node, that could potentially remove that competition. And then you would get kind of unfettered, uh, unfettered conduction of that atrial fibrillation down the accessory pathway, and that could precipitate ventricular fibrillation. But I, I go against that mantra because I think if, if you don't, necessarily, you know, just do algorithms and you don't necessarily do knee-jerk medicine and you take a second to think and, and look at the data that's in front of you, you can figure out whether a patient is in AFib in Wolf-Parkinson-White or not. Because if you think about it, if, you know, what are the hallmarks of atrial fibrillation? What do you guys remember about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, you have the sawtooth pattern of the P waves. It's... Oh, wait a minute. That's a flutter. That's a flutter. Oh, so what about sorry. AFib? Irregularly irregular? Irregularly irregular, right? Yeah. So it's like the QRSs, they're kind of all over the place. There's not any rhyme or reason to their cadence at all. Um, narrow narrow QRS, right? And let's see if uh, the first, you know, we started off talking about reentrant uh, SVT that was going to be very, very regular, right? So if somebody comes in an SVT, you're going to have very, very regular narrow QRS complexes. So the first tip off that you're dealing with somebody in AFib, you're not going to see a regular pattern you're going to see an irregularly irregular pattern. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is, what are signals going to look like? Uh, what, are the, what are the QRS complexes going to look like if they go down the accessory pathway? Are they going to use the Hisperkinji system? No, right? We just talked about how, oh yeah, you get this delta wave because it's not accessory pathway conduction doesn't give you, doesn't get down the uh, Hisperkinji system. So any signal that goes down the accessory pathway, that's going to give you a wide QRS complex. So somebody who's in a somebody is in that rare situation of they have WPW and they're in AFib, you're going to see a irregularly irregular pattern, and you're going to see a mix of narrow QRS and wide QRS. So that's what you should see. 
you know, if somebody has a history of WPW and they come in and they are in narrow QRS, dead regular, they're not an AFib. And I, I would say you can, I mean, call us first for sure, but you can feel pretty comfortable, you know, giving that patient adenosine. And you know what, guess what? If there were any doubt, you would give, uh, you would give electricity, right? You would just do electrocardioversion, which shouldn't put them at any increased risk and theoretically could treat their AFib as well, right? So I guess uh, getting back to your uh, earlier question, Chris, like, oh, when would you use electricity instead of adenosine? I guess that would be another situation. Anytime that a person with known uh, WPW came in and you, you weren't 100% sure they were in SVT and you thought, oh man, maybe they're in AFib and I'm gonna kill this guy if I give him adenosine. Yeah, I guess that's probably a pretty good, pretty good reason to get the paddles on them and, and use electricity instead. Well, and can I ask too, as far as adenosine versus beta blockers, is there ever, I did that, you know, adenosine gives you the information, it, it stops the AV node entirely so it can break that circuit. But as you mentioned, especially in chronic, if you could slow the AV node down just enough, does that ever break an SVT? Would you ever just do... I know in adults with an AFib with RVR, sometimes we'll just do a, a push of metope or something. Is that ever a reasonable thing before electricity or for any other instances? Or is adenosine yeah, that, that much better? Well, yeah, you know, adenosine, again, you need an IV to place it. Um, it if, for example, in some, of our, uh, in some of our kids where we know they have SVT, they're out in the community and they have a breakthrough episode, you know, sometimes the first thing that we tell them to do is, hey, as long as you're not feeling too bad, Take an extra dose of your beta blocker and hang out for an hour and see if it, and then try, and then try your vagal maneuvers again and see if it works. You know, frankly, most of the time that works. Give them a little bit of extra beta blocker, have them hang around for an hour again, as long as they're feeling okay, uh, and then repeat vagal maneuvers and see. Because sometimes, right, you, you slow them down a little bit more uh, with an extra dose of beta blocker, and then all of a sudden that vagal maneuver works because you've slowed down the AV node uh, that much more in order for it to work. Gotcha. So afterwards, so you so you say you've broken their SVT and you're trying to figure out what to do with them now. Mom's crying and my hugging first question, you. Yeah. Just trying to paint a picture. <laughs> so, so some of my, my questions are like, are there other tests we should do? Should I be checking a thyroid? Should I be doing other labs? Like, do I need to be doing that as well in part of the post-care? Yeah, so, um, uh, so if you're dealing with a more unusual arrhythmia, like if you saw a flutter or AFib or something, that would be uh, definitely, you know, checking a thyroid level would definitely be something that you'd want to do. It's very common to get an echocardiogram as part of the initial workup. And that's because people quote that, um, you know, people who have SVT have a much higher incidence of congenital heart disease. And it might be something subtle, like a small atrial septal defect that escaped detection before. Uh, frankly, most of the time when we've diagnosed SVT out of the blue, I frankly don't oftentimes find congenital heart disease associated with it. But if you look at the literature, you know, they, they quote pretty high incidences of congenital heart disease as compared to the general population in, uh, in people who are diagnosed with SVT. But other things to do, I mean, an echocardiogram, I think, would be important to do, uh, certainly in any infant that you've just converted, because again, we don't know how long, we don't necessarily know how long they've been in it. And you want to make sure that you're not dealing with um, a dysfunctional, you know, heart. Um, uh, so that would be an important thing to do. But outside of that, no, you know, th there's not a lot of other testing other than, you know, getting a new baseline 12 lead after they're out of SVT. So you can say, for example, you know, do they have WPW or, or something else? And yeah, you know, again, echocardiogram, maybe, and definitely yes, if it's an infant uh, and or you're not sure how long the kid's been in it. 
this is actually a perfect transition to going back to um, Wolf. So Wolf did return to normal sinus rhythm, and then we did repeat our EKG, and of course we identified a short PR interval and a delta wave. So we kind of hit on the diagnostic criteria already as far as testing goes, but just want to double check, did we make a diagnosis of WPW syndrome with just that EKG, or did it need any of the echo or any of the other testing to actually make that diagnosis? No, WPW is a purely ECG uh, diagnosis. And remember, you don't know, um, when the patient's in SVT, you can't diagnose WPW. WPW, those features that we said, short PR interval, delta wave, you need antegrade conduction down the accessory pathway. When you're in SVT, the electricity is going down the AV node and up the accessory pathway and then down the AV node. You say, well, wait a minute. How do you know it's going that way? How do you know it's not going the other way? You know it's not going the other way because if it was going the other way, you'd have wide QRS complexes, right? We, we began by saying it's a narrow QRS. So you know the electricity is going down the AV node through the Hisperkinji system and back up. And because of that, you'll never see the delta wave or the short PR interval when the patient's in SVT. You've got to break them out first. And then they go back into sinus rhythm and you get that anti-grade conduction and then the WPW pattern comes out. So uh, for a kid like Wolf, who actually did have a uh, an episode of what we're calling an SVT, as well as a diagnosis of WPW, do kids like him go on preventative medicines? Yeah, so uh, we usually do whenever. Uh, so if you diagnose a kid who's in SVT, you break them out. Yeah, they generally. So you could argue it both ways. Um, I would say that it would it would not be wrong to uh, have a first time SVT uh, diagnosis. You just kind of wait and watch. And that would be particularly safe to do in an older kid who's going to be able to tell you in the future, hey, I'm having palpitations again, or I'm having chest pain or difficulty breathing or whatever. In an infant, we would err a little bit more toward maybe treating them to be putting them on preventative beta blockers or something like that. Certainly if a kid, let's say a kid was in the hospital, you've seen them have a couple of episodes of SVT, you know, you got them out of it, but then they go back into it. That generally that generally means that they should be on uh, a preventative medicine. But every once in a while, you get a kid where they, they go into SVT, you break it, and then you just never see it again. So it, it is reasonable to consider, especially in an older kid who can reliably tell you what their symptoms are, uh, it would be reasonable to, um, to not treat them and just wait and watch. Can you do like a pill in pocket type? For some of those who are symptomatic? Yeah, you theoretically could. Um, and, and that probably gets to how frequently they're having breakthrough episodes. For example, let's say we had a teenager who, you know, once or twice a year, they get into SVT. And boy, when they get into SVT, you just cannot break that SVT with vagal maneuvers. They're always coming into the emergency room. They're getting the adenosine, the whole bit. That, that would probably be the situation where I would say a pill and pocket technique uh, might be worthwhile. And when we say pill and pocket, what we're talking about is you don't go on daily therapy, right? Like I'm going to take a beta blocker every day to prevent a once a year episode. Like that just seems excessive. Um, so some people will do a pill in the pocket where they just carry around um, a dose of beta blocker or theoretically something a little stronger like flecainide or, or, or something like that, where when they feel the symptoms, they take the pill, they hang out, uh, and if their symptoms, you know, don't resolve within an hour or two, you send them to the emergency room for kind of more definitive therapy. Um, generally speaking, I would say I, the pill in the pocket approach, I, I sometimes will do in my teenagers with um, atrial fibrillation. I generally don't do it so much with um, uh, my kids with uh, more kind of run-of-the-mill SVT. And so what's your go-to uh, preventative medicine? Do you usually do 
beta blockers? And if so, you know, there's a lot of beta blocker choices out there. Just curious um, where you generally start. Yeah, sure. So in the in the younger kids, you're going to want to use something uh, more short acting because if you ever overshoot, you know, in a little baby with a long acting beta blocker, you could get yourself into trouble. So with the baby, we're usually using uh, short acting propranolol, which is a three times a day medicine. Sometimes as they get a little bigger, you can transition them to twice a day medicine. And usually, you know, a starting dose of propranolol would be something like two milligrams per kilogram per day in divided dosing. As kids get bigger, as they're able to tolerate pills, uh, we pretty rapidly, uh, when they can tolerate it, transition them to a once daily beta blocker just for just for ease and convenience. And really, once you get to that point, it's dealer's choice. It's atenolol or um, metoprolol succinate, which is the long-acting form of metoprolol. You can use natalol. There's a bunch of different choices, and 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 you can trial different things. Oh, and uh, hey, there's long-acting propranolol these days too, right? I mean, that wasn't around when when I was in training, so. Um, there's a lot of different choices, and um, sometimes uh, one beta blocker works better for a certain individual than others. So if you fail with one beta blocker, it's totally reasonable to try a different one to see if you can, I don't know, you know, get get a little bit better efficacy out of a different one. Can Wolf play sports? Good question. So uh, you know, people worry that the that a high adrenaline state a will increase the risk of them going into SVT, uh, and maybe more importantly, b theoretically could accelerate that antegrade conduction. And so if they were ever to go into AFib, they could maybe more likely go into VFib. We generally don't restrict our, uh, our kids with WPW from uh, athletics. But again, as soon as they get to an age and size that's amenable to catheterization, and the size is usually around about 25 kilograms is about the minimal size that, that you can get away with where uh, an electrophysiologist can do a catheterization without uh, risking, risking harm to blood vessels by putting all those uh, electrophysiology catheters in there and everything. So once a kid gets to about 25 uh, kilograms, that's generally when we start to think about referring them for ablation for Wolf-Parkinson-White. But before that, we gen- you, know, you have a really long conversation with the parents, right? And you say, these are the risks. They're extremely low. Importantly, those preventative medicines that we talked about before, while they decrease the risk of SVT, they do not decrease the risk of sudden death in association with AFib. So that's a really important uh, point. And you just mentioned about ablation as well. I think um, just to cover, again, we kind of talked about in the beginning, but um, but who would you send for ablation entirely? And does everyone with Wolf-Parkinson-White ultimately go for ablation? So if you were to diagnose an older kid with WPW, uh, let's start there. Um, the benefit of having an older kid is that you can do, there's one non-invasive test that you can do to try to risk stratify them to, to see if you think that they are high risk Wolf Parkinson White. And when I say high risk, what I mean is they have an accessory pathway that can conduct very, very rapidly versus a low risk Wolf Parkinson White, which is sure they have an accessory pathway, but that sucker can't conduct very rapidly, right? If your accessory pathway can only conduct at 150 beats a minute, if you go into AFib, dude, you got no worries, right? I mean, you're not, you can't go into VFib from that. So the way you figure that out is, uh, again, if you have an older kid or a teenager with Wolf Parkinson, what you can put them on a treadmill and you just, you stress them. You, you just try to rev up their heart rate as fast as you can get it. And as they, as they're exercising, if you see that that short PR interval and delta wave go away. What that means is at those faster heart rates, 
that accessory pathway, it cut out. It, it couldn't handle those faster heart rates. It couldn't conduct anagrade anymore. And that predicts if you were in AFib at those extremely rapid atrial rates that you don't develop VFib. So um, an exercise stress test is something that can be helpful in your older kids. Uh, but in, in your younger kids, unfortunately, um, you, you're, so, so certainly any, any documented VTAC or VFib, that, that buys you an ablation immediately. Any kind of unexplained incident, so a kid presents with unexplained syncope, and then you discover that they have Wolf Parkinson White, Hey, you know, like you don't know what happened. If you don't, if you don't know what happened there, that kid, you know, gets an ablation immediately. But really, any kid where you don't know the you don't know the conduction properties of the accessory pathway, we generally err on the side of caution and refer them for ablation just because of the risk of that very bad outcome. Usually, one of my last questions before we, we finish wrapping up, up is, you know, looking at the future of SVT treatment options, what's on the horizon? Are there any cool things that you know about that that are going to be tools for us as physicians in the future that we can use for our patients with SVT? Yeah. So, you know, uh, ablation technology is getting better all the time. You know, I, I think that there's going to be hopefully less risky invasive ways of, of, of mapping out these accessory pathways and ablating them right now that, that 25 kilogram, uh, limit, that's a really tough thing, right? If you diagnose a baby with WPW, the counseling is, okay, mom and dad, you know, we can treat your baby with beta blocker to prevent SVT, but we still haven't mitigated the risk of sudden death. And we're just going to have to wait until your kid gets to about 25 kilograms and then refer them. And, you know, that, that's, that's anxiety that nobody wants to deal with. So hopefully um, technology will continue to improve to the point where we can do diagnostics and uh, invasive diagnostics and ablation procedures in younger kids. And of course, you know, there's always uh, the possibility of more effective medicines that might prevent kids from going into SVT in the first place. Yeah, so th those, I mean, nothing definitive on the horizon for now, but, uh, but those are the things that I'd be looking, uh, looking toward in the future. Sorry, I do just want to ask one more question that I forgot about. Um, and this, I was really curious, it's happened to me a couple times. What about if WPW was just diagnosed incidentally on an EKG? Completely asymptomatic, for example, came into the hospital, had something like pneumonia or something like that, bradycardic overnight, got an EKG, and you saw what we would consider WPW pattern. Um, are all the same things we ap applied, or do we need to call the cardiologist? Or is this something that's just like, hey, it's incidental, don't worry about it? Oh, yeah, no, definitely call the cardiologist with those incidental cases because that might be your one uh, your one moment in time where you've captured that. If you make an incidental uh, diagnosis of old Parkinson White, that definitely warrants uh, a call to the cardiologist. Uh, that might be the one uh, moment in time where you're able to capture that patient and, um, and kind of manage them appropriately. It's well known that rarely, but importantly, uh, sometimes people present their first presentation of old Parkinson White is actually when they present in VFib, you know, which is again a lethal condition. So, um, so that that's a that's a kid who definitely needs to be monitored. They definitely need to be probably they either need an exercise stress test or they need to be referred for ablation. Great. So I think you know we we covered a lot. We started from approaching you know a narrow complex tachycardia, talking about the different types of SVT with the atopic atrial tachycardia with re reentry tachycardia to the AV node or through a different accessory pathway. We talked about vagal maneuvers, some antiarrhythmics, um, and indications for ablation and uh, electricity cardioversion. Um, this has been really wonderful. What, what do you think, what are the main take-home points for, for listeners for the show 
about SVT that you want people to, to walk away with? Yeah, so I would say uh, the first thing dealing with tachyarrhythmias, always remember that kind of first question. Are we dealing with a hemodynamically stable or unstable patient? Because if it, the patient's unstable, we're moving immediately to electric cardioversion and more invasive therapy. If the patient is hemodynamically stable, hey, you can take a couple breaths, get a, get an EKG, you know, think a little bit, you know, kind of assess the patient a little bit more, try to figure out what's going on. Remember that SVT, importantly, is usually not immediately life-threatening, so you have time to think. You have time to look at the rhythm strip. You have time, if you want to, to call a cardiologist and, and look things over. You know, you don't have to run around and, and, and immediately cardiovert that patient because, generally speaking, they're going to remain stable for a long time before they get into any kind of trouble. And then, you know, the next step is always to get a picture of what those electrical signals look like, get that patient on a monitor, uh, an EKG if you have it in the office or if not, you know, know that you have time to get that kid to the emergency department where they can get those diagnostic tests that they need. And if you happen to be the one in the emergency department, you know, follow your algorithm. That, that, that's what they're there for. Again, you're going to have time to look at your card and, and take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. You know, the patient's not going to crump in front of you. You have time to think about it and treat it appropriately. But yeah, you know, again, whenever, whenever you're in situations like that and you're uncertain uh, or you're confused about what you're seeing, that's what your friendly neighborhood cardiologist is, is around for. And, you know, give us a call and we can help, figure, uh, help sort it out for you. Nice. We, we cannot thank you enough for, for all of your insights and sharing your time with us. Um, anything that you would like to plug, anything that we should send our listeners to, to, to have them check out after this episode? Uh, no, I, th th this is my only gig, guys. I don't have anything else going <laughs> Easy on. Easy enough. You know? <laughs> uh, awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for, for sharing your time, thank your you. expertise. Um, we really, really appreciate you. And I think this is an outstanding episode. Oh, great. Thanks, guys. It was a lot of fun, as always. And uh, yeah, let me know if there's anything else you guys want to chat about. All right. All right. Hey, appreciate you. So this has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We are committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Sam Mazur. A special thanks to our showrunner for the show Cribsiders, Sam Mazur and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Sam Mazur. And this has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. Thank you and good night, good morning, evening, afternoon. See you guys. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.